0: Welcome to the British History Podcast, my name is Jamie and this is episode 295, The Return of England. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at the BritishHistoryPodcast.com. And thank you very much to Vanessa, Haley, and Jessica for signing up already. You know the pieces on a chessboard? There's the knight, the queen, the castle, and then there's the bishop. Well, there's a reason why a game that simulates medieval power strategies has a piece called the bishop. Bishops had power, and it was a power that didn't flow from the monarchy. And in Britain, it wasn't a power that necessarily had to be aligned with the monarchy either. We're going to see this over and over again on the island. If you're trying to rule in Britain, the holy men that were already present in Britain were often a wild card in your hand of ambitions. And the more powerful the holy man, the bigger the potential for an upset. An Archbishop Wolfstan of Jorvik had been a serious problem for England and for quite some time. He was installed into his position by King Athelstan back in the days when Jorvik was part of England. And Athelstan might have thought that he was a good pick. I mean, he had a distinctly English name, Wolfstan. But despite that, it turned out that Wolfstan was hostile to English power. And the sign started early. In 935, just four years after he was installed by Athelstan, Wolfstan suddenly stops appearing in charters, which means that he ceased attending the English court. And this apparent boycott of the Court of England seemed to be more than a simple personality clash, because he continued to avoid the Court of England even after Athelstan died. And then... Things escalated from mere silent treatment into outright war. When King Olaf Guthrifson began his campaign against England, Archbishop Wolfstan was seen marching right alongside him. And actually, Wolfstan even represented Olaf in the resulting truce negotiations. Negotiations that resulted in the five boroughs being absorbed into Olaf's new Danelaw. So for the English, Wolfstan was quite the headache. But someone apparently brought some paracetamol... Because that Wolfstan headache went away when Olaf Guthfrithson died, and Olaf Citriksson took the throne. In the blink of an eye, Edmund had retaken the five boroughs and significantly weakened the power of Danelaw, and suddenly, right alongside that, we see Archbishop Wolfstan hanging out in the English court once again, witnessing charters for the first time in seven years. And the timing of that event can't be a coincidence. Say what you like about Wolfstan, but that guy knew which way the wind was blowing. And in the early 940s, the wind was at the back of England. And that was clear for anyone to see. King Edmund had rebuilt his furd, He'd retaken the five boroughs through a force of arms. He'd assisted his ally, King Hulthaw, in the conquest of virtually all of Wales, which meant that he no longer had to worry about his western border, and he had a very powerful friend who he could call upon if he got into trouble. King Edmund was sitting at the top of the world and he was starting to look very much like his older brother Athelstan. And I suspect that Archbishop Wolfstan, like any opportunist, was looking to use that situation to benefit his archdiocese. And it turned out his archdiocese could use the help. You see, Jorvik had a bit of a problem. It was an old problem that actually had been plaguing Northumbria multiple times over the years. They had too many kings. They had only recently deposed Olaf Citrixen. But when they did that, they didn't kill him. And maybe that was the plan. Maybe no one wanted to commit regicide. Or perhaps they'd intended to kill him, but the whole thing was bungled. Either way, though, Olaf Citrixen was still out there. And it was pretty clear he wanted his old job back. And that was a problem for their current king, King Ragnald. Because Northumbria, being what it was... It wouldn't be too hard for Citrixen to find supporters who would be willing to do to Ragnald what they did to Olaf. And that was a problem for Archbishop Wolfstan, because a civil war like that would weaken the kingdom of Jorvik. And Wolfstan had seen firsthand how quickly a weakened territory could be absorbed by the English, often at the point of a sword. And so a meeting was arranged between Edmund, Olaf Citrixen, and Ragnald Guthrifsen, And while we're not told precisely who arranged this meeting, someone must have. And Archbishop Wolfstan is the most likely candidate. He had reason to want to establish this peace treaty. He knew all three kings. And recently, he'd even been attending Edmund's court. And that was a rare thing for the current power structures of Jorvik. So if you're looking for someone who had the connections necessary to actually go and get Edmund involved, Wolfstan was your guy. Furthermore, Remember that this treaty was formalized with a baptism. And that was a heavily ecclesiastical choice, especially considering that there are plenty of other choices that could have been made instead. Now granted, using a baptism doesn't mean that a bishop absolutely had to be the person who arranged this. Alfred had been known to use baptisms. But then again, Alfred was also rather religious, both as an individual and as a ruler. And the fact is, sealing a treaty with a religious ritual like this is a choice that tells us something about the person who is choosing it. And so looking at it, all signs point to this baptismal caper as being the brainchild of Archbishop Wolfstan himself. And to be honest, it might have been a fairly easy sell for him. It was in the interests of the Northerners to want to broker peace. After all, a civil war would weaken the archdiocese and the kingdom and could even cost them their lives. So getting them to the table might have been an easy lift. Furthermore, this peace treaty was also something that benefited King Edmund. It would allow him to demonstrate his imperial power, and it would actually do so in a way that would establish that he was at the head of this new spiritual family, as he was their godparent. And if you looked at that from a certain angle, it almost sort of gave him a claim to Jorvik, which certainly would have appealed to Edmund. The fact is, everyone had a reason to want this treaty. So, towards the end of 943, probably instigated by Wolfstan, we read of Ragnald and Olaf being baptized, with King Edmund standing as their godparent. Which meant that in addition to all the territorial power that Edmund had recently acquired, he was now also elevating himself on the spiritual stage. It had been a pretty good year for King Edmund. And actually, it hadn't been all that bad of a year for King Ragnald either. I mean, the reality of ruling over Jorvik was probably starting to set in for him. The nobles of the North had a taste for treason. They'd been doing it for centuries and hadn't given up the habit, which Ragnald knew all too well, because the only reason he was currently on the throne was because Olaf had been deposed through a coup. And so I'm guessing that Ragnald was quickly coming to realize that for every Northern lord that was supporting his rule, there were probably two others who felt that the job would be handled better by someone else. Perhaps even Olaf Citrixen, since he did have a clear right to the throne. After all, he was from the right family, his family, he had a history in the region that went back many years, and probably most crucially, he was their former king, and he only lost that position through what seemed to be some rather ugly court intrigue. So Olaf, more than anyone else, was probably the biggest threat to Ragnald's reign. But that was all taken care of now. Ragnald had managed to get Archbishop Wolfstan's god to watch over him and enforce a peace between himself and his cousin. And all Ragnald had to do was treat this English king with a bit of deference and let Wolfstan give them a bath. It was a bargain. And as Ragnald rode north, it was probably with a smile on his face. I mean, he likely felt like a big weight had been lifted. Olaf, on the other hand, knew something that Ragnald didn't. Because Olaf knew what BHPers know. Baptisms don't guarantee peace. Getting washed hadn't changed his mind one damn bit. Olaf still wanted his job back. And thanks to King Edmund's ceremony, now Ragnald's guard was down. And that is why it's so important for us to keep our eye on Archbishop Wolfstan. Because I'm not sure what side of this power struggle Wolfstan was on. Looking at the accounts from this period, it doesn't seem like Wolfstan was all that interested in remaining neutral when there was a political fight at hand. He liked to get his hands dirty, and we see him switching sides repeatedly throughout his 25-year long tenure. And because of that, I find it hard to believe that Wolfstan would have stayed out of this conflict once it became clear that it was inevitable. But what side he chose in that conflict is an open question. Did he side with his former boss, Olaf Citrixen, Or with his new boss, Ragnall Guthrifson. I'm not sure. I can't even guarantee that he didn't switch sides a few times in the process. I mean, that's certainly not outside the character of Wolfstan. But whatever side he came down on, in early 944, just weeks or at most a few months after Olaf Citriksson and Ragnall attended the baptismal ceremony at Edmunds Court, Olaf Citriksson raised a flag of rebellion. He marched into Jorvik and declared himself king. And he did that because baptisms, like hostages, don't work. And it's not clear exactly what happened next. While we know that Olaf's rebellion had begun and that Ragnald was responding, we don't know what shape it took. We don't know, for example, if this was an attempted coup or an attempted assassination, perhaps similar to what Guthrum enacted against Alfred at Chippenham. Or maybe this was an outright open rebellion with whole armies in the field right from the start. We don't know. In fact, we don't even know if there were large-scale armies in the field at any point. It's possible that things just immediately disintegrated, and rather than a large military operation, things splintered into countless small gang-sized fights that were happening all over the place. I mean, what we're talking about here is civil war, so it's even possible that you had families being split up over this. We really don't know, because if there were people writing down the history of Olaf's war for the crown, we haven't found it. And honestly, I doubt anyone did write down what was happening. But however it was going down, Northumbria was Northumbriang as hard as it possibly could. And that gave King Edmund an opportunity. And a rather familiar one. Over a hundred years earlier, Northumbria had been embroiled in a civil war just like this one. Osbert and Alla's war for the throne had weakened the kingdom to such an extent that when Halfdan rolled in, he was able to claim Ephewich and kill the two warring kings. Afterwards, he renamed his new city of Efowich to Jorvik. And as the saying goes, history might not always repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And so we're told that upon seeing this civil war that was taking place in Jorvik, King Edmund marshaled his fyrd and marched north into Jorvik. And once again, we know very little. We don't know if the two would-be kings, Olaf and Ragnald, joined forces to fight against the English, or if the North turned into a battle royale with all sides fighting each other. But however it went down, we know that King Edmund spent the better part of the campaigning season in Jorvik and the surrounding area. And by the end of the year, both Ragnald and Olaf were expelled from the kingdom. It was an impressive feat. And for what he managed to accomplish there you'd expect more details. I mean, Edmund got a full praise poem entered into the Chronicle for his retaking of the five boroughs. So why aren't we getting that same degree of attention for the defeat of two kings of Jorvik? Well, I suspect that part of the reason that we don't know much about what was happening here is that it would have resulted in some very bad press. When you read the Chronicle, it starts to become quite clear that while the scribes have no trouble telling us about when the House of Wessex were ruthless with foreigners they do start to get a bit more tight-lipped when the targets for that brutality are their own people, or at least people they're trying to assert are their own people. The fact is that the Chronicle was paid for and commissioned by the House of Wessex, and the goal of the Chronicle was fairly clear. It was to promote this concept of Englishness, and specifically to promote the House of Wessex as the rightful rulers of the English. That's why military losses by Alfred's family tend to be downplayed or ignored and why the scribes neglect to tell us about how Alfred's brothers died, even though the Vikings tended to be nearby every time it happened. The fact is, one of our best historical sources for this period is propaganda, and we need to remind ourselves of that from time to time. And if you're writing a justification for why the House of Wessex should rule over the English, I don't think you're going to want to talk about the brutal civil war that King Edmund got himself involved in. I mean, you're not going to want to talk about any of the ruthless tactics that would have been used against the people that he was claiming were English and his subjects. Doing something like that would undercut the heroic liberator of slaves theme that Edmund had been working on since he reconquered the five boroughs. But considering that he and his army spent the better part of a year in Jorvik, it's pretty clear that they encountered a significant amount of resistance to this plan of annexation. And the tactics that they would have employed to break that resistance wouldn't have been heroic nor would they have added to his family's right to rule. And so, when you read the Chronicle, all we're told is, quote, This year, King Edmund reduced all the land of the Northumbrians to his dominion and expelled two kings, Olaf, son of Citric, and Ragnald, son of Guthrith. Quote. It takes a war that was probably pretty messy and makes it nice and clean. Well, mostly. The the reduced-all-the-land part does imply that there's a certain degree of scourging that occurred during this campaign. And my suspicion is most of that probably would have occurred in southern Northumbria, around Jorvik. You see, the northern portion of Northumbria appears to have been rather accepting of Edmund's rule, as their nobility were of Anglo-Saxon and British descent, and thus the specific targets of this multi-generational project of creating a cultural identity called the English. And this cultural split that was occurring could explain why the north was a problem for Scandinavian rulers, as demonstrated by the sacking of the church at Tinningham, but it doesn't appear to have been any problem whatsoever for Edmund. But the south, on the other hand, was a different matter. That was land that had been seized and shared out by Halfdan over a century earlier. And then we've seen successive Scandinavian rulers establishing their base of operations there and likely installing friendly Scandinavian rulers just like Haftan did. And this would have happened again and again and again, including with Sitricson and Ragnald. And so my guess is that the reason why the Scandinavians had so much problems in the north and didn't appear to have any problems in the south would have resulted in a diametrically opposed problem for Edmund where the north would have been a lot easier for him to handle, but the area around Jorvik would have been deeply entrenched under Scandinavian leadership. So my thinking is that the reason why Edmund's campaign to retake Northumbria took so long was due to an entrenched insurgency that was coming out of the region between the River Humber and the River Tees, which is where a lot of the ruling class were Scandinavian in descent and might not have been all that convinced by Edmund's talk of Englishness. And then you have the other problem that's sitting in the shadows there, the church. Throughout all of this, we're not told how Archbishop Woolstan dealt with the situation. We don't know what side he came down on. We don't know if he supported Edmund. We don't know if he supported Ragnald, Olaf, or if he just stayed out of it. But I can imagine that if he wanted to, he could have caused all manner of problems for Edmund. And one thing to notice here is that when talking about this conquest of Jorvik, archbishop wolfstan isn't mentioned if wolfstan had sided with edmund in this apparent civil war don't you think the scribes would want to talk about that i mean after all that would make the house of wessex look great because the archbishop of jorvik was siding with them recognizing their dominion over the north and it would also be talking about a powerful member of the church which the scribes love to do so that would be a twofer but instead we get nothing and given that silence. My guess is that either Wolfstan stayed out of the matter entirely, which I doubt because this was a dude who clearly liked to be all up in it, or Wolfstan sided with someone who wasn't named Edmund, which would have made the annexation of Jorvik and its surrounding territories a lot more difficult. However it went down, though, it was obviously a bit of a struggle. But in the end, after about a year of campaigning, the kingdom of Jorvik was broken and Northumbria was annexed into England once again. King Edmund was triumphant. But there still was the small matter of the two kings of Jorvik. So long as they lived, they were a threat. And we don't know what happened to Ragnald. Once he fled the kingdom of Jorvik, the record of his life comes to an end. Maybe he died on the road, or at sea, or maybe he lived peacefully on a nice farm somewhere with your childhood dog. More likely... Perhaps he was captured by someone like the Scots and was handed over to Edmund and put to death. But ultimately, we don't know. He simply vanishes from the record. Olaf Citrixen, on the other hand, doesn't. After about a year of living in the shadows, he resurfaces. And almost miraculously, we actually have some evidence for where he might have been spending his time during that missing year. See, we have this story of what was going on, And they come from the entries in the Chronicle, the Flowers of History, the Welsh Chronicle of Princes, the Irish Annals, and Henry of Huntingdon's History of the English. And they give us little hints of what was going on. And scholars have looked at this record from 945 and pieced together the outlines of a story and have come up with a theory of how Olaf might have fit in with this whole story. But first, I'll give you the story. So at some point prior to 945, King Diffenwall of Strathclyde and King Edmund of England struck some sort of agreement. And one possibility is that Diffinwall agreed to support Edmund against his enemies, or that he agreed to stand against Jorvik. Given the circumstances and the increasingly aggressive posture that England was taking, it's not out of the question that Strathclyde might have wanted to do that and strike the same tone that Scotland was taking, namely one of neutrality. But whatever the agreement was, in 945 the year following the breaking of Jorvik, King Edmund determined that King Diffenwall was in breach of that agreement. And so he marshaled his fyrd and he prepared to go on campaign once again. But this time, he wouldn't campaign alone. And that should tell you how significant this breach was, whatever it was. Because King Edmund and his fyrd were marching right alongside King Huel Thaw and the Welsh army. And what they brought down upon Strathclyde was nothing short of savage. Unlike the reducing of Northumbria, the scribes get a little more free with their language about the campaign against Strathclyde. They speak about how Edmund and his forces overran the kingdom. Henry of Huntingdon talks about how they ravaged Strathclyde. The Welsh sources talk of how Strathclyde was laid to waste. They burned their way through that kingdom. But Edmund wasn't done yet. King Diffenwall had two sons. And the boys had either been handed over to King Edmund as hostages back when the two kings formed their agreement, or they'd been captured during the campaign. Either way, by the end of this campaign in 945, the boys were in Edmund's custody. And it's clear that whatever Diffenwall had done to breach the agreement, it had enraged the English king. Because the punishment that he handed out was severe. Both of the boys were blinded. With this act, Edmund wasn't just punishing Diffenwall and his sons physically. He was directly demolishing their very dynasty. Because now that they were blinded, Diffenwall no longer had an heir that could inherit the throne. His only heirs were those boys, and they had just been rendered ineligible to rule on the grounds of disability. This was an act without any hint of mercy behind it. Edmund, like his half-brother Athelstan, was like a thunderbolt to his enemies. And it's here where Olaf comes into the story. Because some scholars theorize that what made Edmund lose all sense of pity or restraint, and what led him to want to lay waste to Strathclyde and mutilate their crown princes, was that Strathclyde was harboring England's enemy, Olaf Citrikson, and that they refused to hand him over. It's a convincing argument, Especially considering that Strathclyde and Jorvik had a close relationship that persisted even after the loss of Brunemberg. And it certainly would explain why Olaf doesn't appear in Dublin until the following year. It's possible that he was hiding out, and maybe making preparations to retake Jorvik, and Edmund came down on Strathclyde for that breach like a divine strike from God. But, regardless of whether or not this was all over Olaf, now that Diffenwall was defeated, and his sons were blinded, The throne of Strathclyde was now in Edmund's possession. However, King Edmund can only reasonably control so much territory. And Strathclyde, being so far away and being part of a foreign cultural group, would have been a heavy lift for him. He probably would have had to spend most of the next several years just putting down any kind of resistance that was coming up out of Strathclyde. And the fact was that he was probably going to have to do that in Jorvik, given the state of what was going on down there so he already had more than enough trouble on his plate. So instead, King Edmund decided to use his newly acquired kingdom as a carrot to form new alliances. He offered it to King Malcolm of Scotland in exchange for an alliance where Malcolm would agree to support England by land and sea, should Edmund require it. Malcolm agreed to the terms. And thus, by the end of 945, England had been fully reunited and Wales and Scotland were both brought back under the English umbrella. The kingdom, which had nearly been broken in the first few years of Edmund's rule, had returned to where it had been in the days of Athelstan. England was back. And that was a good thing, because King Louis of France really needed some help. And we'll get to that next time. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter, Facebook, pretty much everything, and you can find links to all those communities in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.